My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine and today I was joined by Alex Stewart. Alex joins me to discuss Liverpool. Now, of course, with the season postponed, so too postponed will be Liverpool's uh, inevitable triumph. Um, we are anticipating that with the Euros now also postponed until 2021, the Premier League season will finish at some point. And so in honour of a team a million miles ahead of everyone else, Alex talks to me all about their tactical setup and how, how are they so good, basically. Um, it's worth pointing out that Seb Stafford Bloor also joined us today, but suffered some technical difficulties and had to withdraw early on. So here or there, you may hear us make reference to Seb. He's not here and uh, neither is anything he said. So just ignore that. This episode is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. Visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO for a seven-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. So, I began today's episode by asking Alex for a little recap and a summary of Liverpool's current tactics, the very same tactics that enabled their incredibly long, unbeaten run. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that the the front three of Salah, Mane and Firmino in the middle, Firmino every time, yes. <laughs> every time. Um, Goodness me. That's, that's predominantly stayed the same um, in terms of what they're doing. So Firmino is dropping off, he's linking play, he's integral to the pressing game. Salah and Mane are able to cut inside, look to run onto passes, um, and and play as, as kind of inverted wingers, but but more direct inverted wingers than say uh, an Arjen Robin did. Um, I think what's changed is uh, that the fullbacks have become increasingly important as the overall playmakers. So Liverpool's midfield is predominantly quite workmanlike. That's that's in some respects because Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Naby Keita, who are the two players who can play more progressively, who can push up and support attacks, uh, have largely been uh, unavailable for selection. Uh, Gini Wijnaldum has done this a bit, but it's not his natural game. So what you've got is quite a kind of tight, compact midfield three uh, who look to win the ball back, and then the thrust is coming from the fullbacks. What that's done is it's integrated a couple of additional things to the way that Liverpool play and do very well. So... Long diagonal passes, which are either coming from Van Dijk at centre-back, who is very good at this, or from the full-backs almost to kind of the opposite side of the pitch. Sometimes that can be uh, quite horizontal as well, the switches in play, but they're they're looking to play more directly um, because of that. The other thing they're doing a bit more is the kind of thing that we've seen from people like Roger Schmidt and Ralph Hasenhutl as part of a Gagan pressing style, which is to look to get the ball forwards quite vertically and then capitalise on winning the ball back. Um, Roger Schmidt used to take it to an extreme at Leverkusen where his team almost wouldn't even contest 
and and wait to kind of mop up the second ball. But Liverpool are they've added a directness to their game uh, alongside the things that we're sort of familiar with. And it's interesting that that with Liverpool, Klopp has kind of managed to keep a philosophy to the way his his side play. So obviously, pressing is important, pace is important. Um, that front three is crucial, but he's subtly tweaked it. We've talked before about the degree to which his teams press and how that's been altered largely on a game-by-game basis, but they've added this verticality a, a little bit more now, brought the fullbacks in as the primary playmakers, uh, and, and it's sort of all worked together as this, um, uh, you know, ramping up the directness, and, and teams really have struggled to cope with that. In terms of what we've come uh, to be used to over the last, maybe I was going to say five years, but let's call it 10 years, right? Um, Obviously, we've seen the kind of passing uh, of the mantle from uh, tiki-taka to the more high-pressing systems. But this one, the way you describe it, it's quite distinct from what we've known to be the systems or I suppose the preferred tactics that some of the better teams in the world have been using over the last few years. You describe it almost as if it's a kind of a long ball thing. I mean, I know that's not accurate, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think there's a degree to which that has increased in terms of of what they do. Um, And is that just because, you know, you refer to the midfield as a bit of a workman-like midfield as a result of certain injuries? Is that because they haven't had the players in the middle of the park to try something different? Or are we just accepting that this is is a a sort of um, their primary approach? I, I, I think it's... I think it's probably a lot to do with the midfield selection because the reason that Oxlade-Chamberlain was brought in from Arsenal, the reason that Keita was brought in um, was to try and add that element to their game. Um, and, you know, as uh, it's not ideal to only be able to rely on, on one approach. I think the two elements that have compensated for that partly is this thing with the fullbacks where they've been given the license to act as playmakers a little bit more to push forwards and we know that fullbacks do get forwards a lot and try and drive the ball in but there's a degree to which their range of passing particularly Alexander Arnold's is is so excellent and complete that he's able to playmake not just by getting high up the pitch and pulling the ball across but also by launching these passes Van Dyke, Allison, as well is worth mentioning in this respect. It gives them the ability to go direct, but with a degree of accuracy that a lot of teams can't manage. And of course, when you've got Firmino as your centre forward, who's very adept at, at dropping in, quite often a centre back will will follow that run, and that leaves a pot of space either behind Firmino or slightly to the side that that runners can then move into. So. I think they've I think they've adjusted partly out of necessity but no there is there is a point and Blair Newman who's written tactics videos for us in the past on Tifo made the point that that some of these things might seem to be a little bit outdated in inverted commas because people are used to uh, you know from tiki taka through to how um, Guardiola has has done positional play that the, at the really upper end of football certain tactics have been predominant but also just to even simplify that more, the way I was thinking about it when you were talking that at the upper end of football, 
uh, world-class midfields have been predominant, right? That That's always been the... I mean, I'm thinking of, obviously, uh, Barcelona in their prime, but also even, you know, a more recent example, as you say, is, is is any of Pep Guardiola's teams over the last 10 years. The Man City team now, we look at Kevin De Bruyne as the... as you know their their best player by a million miles, and he's he's the fulcrum of their very important midfield. And for Liverpool, I don't want to sound like I'm criticising Liverpool's midfield because the team are you know a million miles ahead of every other team in the Premier League. But as you describe them as workmen, like they kind of they they don't have the same uh, aura around them that these other world class teams uh, midfields have done. What are they doing? Um, well, I think I think it depends how you define world class. I mean, I I see what you're saying. I think I think it's important to note, for example, with Man City, that the reason that De Bruyne and and say Silver are able to play the way they do as sort of eight ten hybrids is because they had Fernandinho behind them, mopping up and doing a lot of the work that that maybe you know he was sort of effectively compensating for another player in that position. Um, and also, you can be world class in the way that Liverpool's midfield are. You know, they're incredibly defensively solid. There's uh, an extreme positional and tactical intelligence at work there. They know where to be in order to allow the other players to do what they need to do. Um, you've got a huge amount of dynamism from someone like Fabinho. Um, uh, Jordan Henderson is is a fantastic leader on the pitch and an organizer as well as as being able to cover into those spaces and, and know what to do. So, you know, it's it's not just that world class doesn't have to mean creativity. It, it can mean other things. And as long as the team is built with balance in mind, so that that the weaknesses in one area are mitigated by strengths in the other, that's ultimately what you've got to be looking at as a coach. And I think what Klopp is really good at is is working with what he's got obviously you know with signings they augment intelligently so bringing in Allison bringing in Van Dyke you know they've they've looked to strengthen in the areas that were weakest but he's found a balance whereby the midfield that is available to him most of the time does exactly what it needs to do to allow the other players to really fulfill their attacking potential so when we're talking about uh, th- you know the best football teams what i'm always interested in is trying to breakdown between what is a sort of benefit of the system and what is the success of the system and what is a benefit of just having fantastic players right and with Liverpool it's no different than with any of these other teams so Alex how best can you explain this breakdown is it for example as we we described Liverpool system as being slightly unusual and slightly different to the other top teams how much of their um, how much benefit do you think they derive from that and how much of their ability to win games is, is down to the fact that they just have incredible players um okay well they do have incredible players um and particularly in in Mane and Salah and Alexander-Arnold they've got players who can turn games on their head but I think what's crucial is that there's a continuity there um you know Jurgen Klopp's been at that club for a while now and he is a manager who came to the Premier League with a distinct philosophy that he had begun at Mainz, he'd honed at Dortmund. Um, and that allowed him, with also the financial support of um, the Fenway Sports Group and the very smart analytics of people like Michael Edwards, to build a squad that allowed him to play the game that he wanted to play. So there is adaptation on the basis of the availability of of players particularly midfielders and you could argue that you know 
if if your main striking option apart from that front three is Divock Origi, then there are areas of weakness there. But at the same time, what he's done, because he's been consistently there and because he has a philosophy that he sticks to, he's been able gradually to build that squad up into something that he wants it to be. Then you get to the point where the majority of that squad have been around for at least two or three seasons, not including this one, um, and are well-versed in the pressing system, are well-versed in the kind of style that he wants to do. That's the point at which you can then think, right, who are the best three goalkeepers in the world? Let's buy one of them. Uh, Who are the best centre-backs in the world? Let's buy one of them. So that's, you know, it, it gets to the point where you have to, I think the way it works is you have a coach with a philosophy first, then you start building the squad around that with continuity and with that long-term vision in mind. Once you get to a point where you're happy with that, that's when you start to look at individually improving players in a kind of game-changing way, which is what they've done. And I think it's testament to the fact that, yes, Klopp is a fantastic coach. Liverpool as a club is set up to facilitate that. But they are the smartest team in the Premier League in terms of everything else they do as well. And I think you can really see that. Yeah, and you that would be an example for other teams to follow on from, right? Well, I I would think, you know, that's... I would look at Norwich, for example, as a team that are following that. I, I always think it's interesting. I mean, I think under Wenger, Arsenal set the pace initially in terms of the introduction of analytics in in kind of building a backroom staff that's facilitated a lot of these things. Arsenal have dropped off the pace a little bit now, uh, and I think Liverpool are the ones that, that other clubs should be aspiring to follow. Right, Liverpool won an extraordinary number of games in a row, uh, with the exception of a draw to Manchester United uh, in the first half of the season, um, and up until very recently, where they lost a couple of games. That run was extraordinary. Um I know it's impossible to quantify, Alex, but uh, and I was going to ask Seb this as well, but he's just dropped off. The, he's having some technical problems as a result of us not all recording remotely. So we've said goodbye to Seb for now. Um, but I know it's impossible to answer psychologically. What are the requirements um, and what do you need to build a squad and a team that can that is capable of going on a winning run like that? Because the odds are, are against that happening. I mean, they're stacked so high. Um, and it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. What are the what are the sort of similarities that we can see between teams who end up in those uh, situations? I think those teams, and and really, we're talking here about you know the Arsenal team of the Invincibles. It would be very difficult to to answer that with regards to Preston North End from eighteen eighty nine or whatever it was, because I I don't really che- know what they were. Jose up Mourinho's to. Chelsea went on a long run as well, didn't they? Yeah, I I think I think continuity is important. Um, and I think Seb referred to the the intensity of Liverpool, that ability to to stay focused within a game, um, to know what they're doing. Obviously, kind of opposition scouting plays a part in that because teams get increasingly more sophisticated in terms of their analysis. This is something that that, for example, Pep Guardiola has always been very very good at looking at at ways of of subtly tweaking your tactics in order to make the most of of flaws in the opposition or weaknesses in the opposition. So I think that yeah. I think that's crucial. Um I think having you know a a group of players where the core is able to remain the same. Um you know Liverpool have got I think it's a good eight possibly nine players that have started 20 or more games this season. So again when you build continuity in your team 
it, it kind of creates that sense of, of a well-oiled machine. Everybody goes out knowing what it is they're supposed to do. Everybody's mm. operating at a really high level because there aren't generally breaks for injury. In the rare instances that players have to come in and start, you know, Liverpool have got someone like James Milner who can slot in intelligently and and fulfil a role across the midfield or even a... a Granddaddy right steady. Right, exactly. And and again, that kind of experience and intelligence is is helpful. Liverpool have got a good age profile. A lot of their players are, particularly their key players, are in the sort of 26 through to about 29 age bracket, um, which helps with fitness, but also helps with that degree of... There's, there's kind of a, a fine balance between acquiring experience and reaching and then passing a physical peak and Liverpool have a lot of players that are in the sweet spot for that Uh, I think that Mm. helps as well and also you have to look at the influence of Klopp Um, he is an incredibly focused and intense manager Uh, he's very very smart he's able to keep his players on track he also has a a strong team around him that are consistently working on these little extra bits. I mean, in, in the video scripts I referred to earlier, we I mentioned Thomas Gronemark, who's the the throwing coach. You know that attracted a degree of derision when Liverpool hired a throwing coach, but you know it, it's paid dividends. So again, all of these things, it's it's a process where you're building a squad, you're building a backroom staff, you're working on an analytics department. The whole club has to work as a kind of homogenized entity that all has the same goals in mind. And the summit of that, if you also get some luck and if you also have really good players and if you avoid injuries and so on, is the possibility that there will be these long runs. I mean, it is also otherwise... It's stars aligning, really, isn't it? It is to a degree. Um, I think you also have to look at the fact that otherwise the Premier League is, you know, everywhere else, it, it's quite competitive in a close way. So there's... There's teams that are perhaps, you know, worse. take Southampton, for example. They were underperforming. They've gone on a good run of form recently. Um, you know, so there's been a lot of kind of jostling for position everywhere else. Um, and I think that that has meant that certain teams have had, you know, chips taken out of them. They've had tougher games than maybe they would have expected. Um, it, it feels like you've got these top two who are sort of, you know, well, Liverpool have kind of run away with it and City were the only ones that could keep pace with them. But underneath that, it feels quite compressed and quite tight. Um, and even, you know, even a team like Norwich, who's finished where we're up to now, bottom of the league, I think, is still a very good team capable of giving other very good teams a run. So Liverpool have kind of risen above the dogfight to a degree uh, and, and imposed themselves on the league in a way that I think clubs generally struggle with, but is easier if everybody else is almost writing that game off. Like Liverpool will just be too hard to beat. We need to focus on everyone else around us because it's so close and it's so intense. Right, yeah. It's funny, man. I think it, it, Klopp is... Um, I don't know how to describe him. I've tried to do this before on the podcast. Uh, with I don't think with, with Jürgen Klopp, but with other people. But Klopp is... He's just a special uh, person. And I know that's a rubbish description. <laughs> I've never seen him in, in person. I've never seen him in real life. I, but I can tell uh, from these sort of difficult to, to quantify intangibles um, that, that sort of flood through the television screen into my living room, into my face, that Jurgen Klopp is a special, a special guy mm. around whom special things are, are going to happen. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? I, yes, I, 
I do know what you mean. I, there was a. I mean, no one's ever felt that for Neil Warnock, for example. Not to not to deride <laughs> Neil Warnock. Obviously, you know, Neil Warnock has, has been a, a good football coach in his time and serves an absolutely uh, useful purpose, Neil Warnock. But I don't. I you know, I bet with the exception maybe of uh, Neil Warnock's close loved ones. Um, no one's looked at Neil Warnock and gone, this guy is a special man around whom special things happen. No one's ever said that, right? No, they probably haven't. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd not say that to Neil Warnock's face, but I think, no. you know, I, I think with, with Klopp, there's there's something interesting about, uh, Rafa Honigstein's written a good book about him, but this, you know, his background as somebody who was extremely athletic, but not necessarily the most skillful player um but whose dad was desperate for him to to be a professional and kind of drove him to achieve with you know with work ethic and intensity as much as with any kind of natural ability um was very important his his religious convictions are important i think that gives him a it gives him a sense of what's right and wrong but also that 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 kind of conveys well, he's able to convey that with a with a passion because it's a really deeply held belief for him. Um, is he religious? Yes, he is. Yes, he's a Lutheran. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, and and I think that sort of instills a, a a way of thinking and a way of approaching things that that reverberates throughout everything he does. I think as well. Are you talking about faith, sir? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know, right? Also, I think it's interesting that um, he, for example, like Eddie Howe, uh, was a was a player um, when he became a manager. So yeah. uh, at Mainz, he was um, he stepped in. I, I can't. I don't think he directly succeeded Wolfgang Frank. There was maybe a little hiatus, but effectively, Mainz needed a coach who understood the back four system that Mainz used at the time, which was quite unusual in, in the Bundesliga. Uh, and Klopp was able to, or Bundesliga two, actually, I think, uh, Klopp was able to coach that system because he was playing as a defender and they couldn't really find anybody else. So he was he was immediately thrust from the playing squad into the management position and had to work, I think, to establish quite quickly that degree of authority and distance which is required for a coach but in a set of circumstances that was quite unusual and I think in in his early days he didn't necessarily get that right I mean one of the things that Honigstein talks about is is how aggressive he was when he first made that transition you know he used to get into quite a bit of trouble um, because his passion would spill over into behavior that was quite confrontational and, and at times unpleasant and and he's learned to to kind of minimize that. But I think if you're someone like him or how you have to, you go through a more difficult process in bridging that gap from being a player to suddenly coaching the players that you were training alongside. Uh, and I think if you look at how, who was probably up until Bournemouth had a load of recent issues, the, the most well-regarded young English coach, it's an interesting facet that they've both had to, to progress in that way and I think maybe that teaches you something about about leadership and about how to connect with players and keep a good distance but still maintain a relationship um, that maybe other other coaches don't have to have maybe that's why you say someone like Jose Mourinho is much more autocratic and falls out with players a lot more easily um, 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, actually, I was just going to say that. Um, I was just going to bring Mourinho up. I can't remember who it was now, but someone on the podcast not that long ago talked about Jose Mourinho um, and about one of the reasons why he was so successful at Chelsea the first time round was because he was he was young and he was pretty you know he's a similar age bracket to the players old enough older enough that they see him as experienced and as a steady hand young enough that they could still sort of relate to him and that he was one of the first managers who really understood millennials that that was his you know he had an ability therefore to encourage and um, get the best out of them because of that sort of uh, intrinsic understanding but also the age difference and I mean Klopp yeah. is, not, is not the youngest manager but he does have a special uh, he has a special bond with players you can see that Yeah, you can see that every player at the club wants to be around him um, that uh, enjoys his company obviously enjoys his uh, his, um, his uh, confidence and um, there's there's something there's something in that isn't there obviously with him it's it isn't youth it's something else but it also reminded me of a of a video that we um just released last week uh, that was actually an adaptation from um a Rafa Honigstein script on Julian Nagelsmann the athletic and a big part of the script is talking about Nagelsmann uh when he was a player when he was um when he was younger still training um and the relationships that he formed with um with his other his other kind of academy players at the time, uh, who you know now are many of whom are still actually playing. Given that's how young Julian Nagelsmann is, right? Um, but uh, the big part of the script was yeah, it was about the the sort of bonds that these that these guys formed. Um, it seemed to be I know that happens everywhere, but it's sort of written about in as if it's a kind of specifically German thing that this is what happens at German football clubs where young players are bonded together. Do you think there's something in all of that? I think there probably is. I, I think there's a few things to say. The first is that, you know, Mourinho, Mourinho at Chelsea did bring over some of his Porto players as well. Um, so I think uh, Carvalho, Boswinga, at least one or two others. And I think he'd very definitely forged that bond with that Porto squad, particularly given what they'd achieved in the Champions League against the odds. Um, and so not only was he able to import a number of effectively dressing room allies but also advocates you know he had players who could say to their new colleagues you know yes this guy's young yes he comes across a certain way maybe but if you listen to him you're going to win stuff and I think that's that's really important to to not just build those bridges yourself but also have other players who can build those bridges on your behalf I think too with Liverpool it's interesting that that the, the buy-in to what Liverpool are doing from the players seems to extend beyond what they do on the pitch. So there was recently a... <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that funny, but it was quite good for football. Um, a, a little ad thing that they did where you had a few players like uh, Henderson, Robertson, Firmino, a couple of others, um, pretending to take part in a brainstorming session for a branding exercise in order to, to advertise a product. And you could see that they were sort of, they were actually kind of having fun and they were, you know, it, it is a nakedly commercial thing, but the players were obviously not, it wasn't that grudging. You know, there was a sense of, yeah, this is all right. Like, we'll go along with this. And it wasn't the slightly awkward, you know, a picture of Wayne Rooney holding a coffee bag or something. You know, there's there's just a sense there that they're, everybody's sort of getting behind an overall project that they're looking to push forwards rather than just some guys turning up to play football for a manager that they really like. Um, 
And I don't know how Liverpool achieve that, really. I mean, that's I think that's something that's beyond what, what Klopp is able to do. But it's definitely... It's definitely important. I think if you're someone like Nagelsmann or Howe or, or Klopp, although obviously the age gap is wider now, you have to think a lot more carefully about that stuff. Um, you know, if you're if you're kind of an old timer and you've had the traditional path to management, which is you've been really good at football and then you've gone off and done a coaching course and then you've come back in, then you can be autocratic. You can be... Uh, you know, sort of the boss standing at one remove from everybody else. Whereas if you're younger or you've had to adapt because you've made that transition when you're still a player, it's a lot, lot harder to navigate that. And therefore, perhaps if you're an intelligent guy, like all of these people are, then the opportunity afforded you by that difficulty actually makes you think more about it and makes you better at it ultimately. A quick interruption in today's podcast for me to remind you that we are supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. A piece relevant to this episode and worth using your seven-day free trial to check out was Michael Cox on Watford's victory over Liverpool last month. Watford weren't just lucky, says Michael. They thoroughly outplayed Liverpool with and without the ball. And in the article, Michael explains thoroughly how they did that, including their six at the back lineup and their runners in behind the high line. It's a tactical feast and worthy reading, even for Liverpool fans, because it's always good to know your weaknesses. You can check that out by getting a seven-day free trial, visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And if you like it, get 50% off an annual subscription, working out at about £2.50 per month. Go and do that immediately. Hey, Back to the show. Okay, well, listen, let's do some more specific tactic stuff um, in Seb's absence. I've got a few different questions I want to ask you here. The first one is, um, you know, it's, it's sort of accepted that for the last few years, um, Mo Salah has been Liverpool's star player, right? I know, obviously, that's not totally the case and that the, the numerous players there have um, have offered something which uh, is perhaps unique to them. I'm thinking specifically of Roberto Firmino. But is it fair to say that this season, Sadio Mane has been Liverpool's real performer? Um, I mean, I think it's very difficult to uh, to draw a distinction between particularly that unit of three uh, in terms of in terms of how much of a, a star they are or how important they are or, or what have you. Um, I mean, Salah's still scored more league goals than Mane. Um, Mane's got one more assist. Yeah, but Mane, but I feel, has scored uh, important goals at important times. Yeah, I, I think I think the way that those guys play is is very much cohesively as a unit. I think it's no coincidence that they've been together for as a group for longer than any of the other sort of units and in inverted commas within that team. Um, and they all understand one another. So I, I think for me, it's very difficult to, yes, you're, you're right that Mane has popped up with important goals, um, maybe to a degree that he's not done prior to this season. At the same time, the way that group operates is to make space for one another. And so how that works and who ends up profiting from that kind of almost doesn't matter because it's the result of them being such a well-rehearsed, well-honed unit. I mean, you know, Mane's great. As a, as a former Southampton fan, he's probably the one I most resent leaving. Well, maybe Van Dyke, but but it's, you know, you can't, I think with a team this good, it's it's hard to separate out one player and kind of hero them above the others because 
they all work so well together and the opportunities afforded are because of that 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 it's it's difficult to say one guy's the man of this season or or what have you okay well let's stay with the system then um i'm looking at the assists column for liverpool at the moment and i can see that obviously the front three are up there as you would expect but also as you might expect if you listen to what uh you were talking about earlier alex andy robertson and trent alexander arnold alexander arnold by the way fucking miles ahead of everyone else here um can you talk to me a little bit more about the role of the fullbacks in this system because you described them earlier as almost Liverpool's primary playmakers from deeper positions at the moment. Um, Well, the first thing, I suppose, is that Alexander-Arnold, Liverpool, in a, it's not fair to call it lucked out because their recruitment and their academy have obviously done a fantastic job. But um, it's sensational. You could... You could include this as part of the the luck that we were describing before, all of these different elements occurring at once, the stars aligning, having a team like this, having a manager like this, um, and then Alexander-Arnold just appearing from your academy at the perfect time, right? But Andy Robertson, we know, was recruited uh, from uh, a relegated hull. Uh, how important are they, and um, what exactly are they, are they, they doing for the team? So they are completely crucial, given what we've said about midfield and the fact that they don't have these players kind of breaking through into into the half spaces or into the gaps between the lines to be able to create a kind of attacking momentum. What that does is it, it forces Liverpool to play in some ways a little further back than a team of that intensity and, and pressing nature ordinarily would. Alexander-Arnold, I mean... A, He's also very good at set pieces, which is where he gets some of his assists from. But he particularly has the ability as a fantastic athlete, but also as somebody who just has clearly a natural footballing brain. He is able to dominate the right-hand side of the pitch, which allows the rest of Liverpool to play narrow on that side if they want to. The narrowness in midfield is great because it keeps you protected and it means you can win the ball back. The narrowness up front is good because then you can get the sort of neat interplay and movement between that front three that allow them to break through and score goals. With his ability to pass from deep, but also to get up and deliver crosses, he's kind of, he's basically able to create dangerous opportunities from almost anywhere on that right-hand side. He doesn't have to be in the opposition half for a pass that he plays to be a penetrative pass. And that that's just ability. I mean, that's not any, you know, he's just really good at that. On the left-hand side, Robertson is, he's not quite as good as Alexander-Arnold, but I mean, that's, Alexander-Arnold is probably the best fullback in Europe at the moment. Um, but he is effectively the same in terms of what he does. He's able to stretch the width on that side. So he'll, he'll, he'll find a lot of space particularly if if Liverpool are attacking down the right-hand side with Alexander-Arnold and obviously there's you know there's danger men on that side it will draw the opposition over to their left and then he can hit one of these long crossfield passes to Robertson who's suddenly in a huge amount of space with Sadio Mane just ahead and inside of him who is clearly a very dangerous runner and a good finisher so it's this ability to move the ball you know, teams teams will stack one side in order to open up the other. That happens quite a lot. But because of pressing, quite often when the ball is moved from one side to the other, it's not 
propitious to do it from too high up the pitch, right? So what they'll do is they'll they'll sort of pass it back and around a little bit. What Liverpool can do is they can do that crossfield passing from higher up the pitch because of the way that Alexander-Arnold will turn inside and then hit it, or do it from deeper because they've got a couple of players at the back, also Alisson, also Van Dijk, who can hit those diagonal balls from really, really deep. And all of a sudden, you've got a team who can basically open the pitch up from pretty much any other position on the pitch. And then you add in the pace of Mane and the pace of Salah, all of a sudden it, that that's a hugely dangerous ability to have because it, all those elements align to... to you know, that, that thing about that, that Cruyff used to say, that when you're attacking, you want to make the pitch as big as possible. When you're defending, you want to make it as small as possible. And the passing range of those two fullbacks is a massive part of what allows Liverpool to be able to open the pitch up. I would like to ask you about, I mean, this is not a sensible transfers podcast. However, we are in a a sort of unprecedented moment where there's no football right now. uh, And we're not really sure what impact that's going to have on the on the transfer market. I mean, if the league does finish throughout the summer then uh, there, there could be some crossover there, which is quite unusual. Um, but just looking at Liverpool's squad at the moment, it seems I'm expecting you to talk about midfield, perhaps. Uh, I don't know. But where are the obvious areas of, um, if there are any, uh, weakness? Um, and you know, with that in mind, where would you look to strengthen in the summer? Um, and or what are the difficulties of doing that when you have such a, a finely balanced squad already? Yeah, I think that last point is crucial because Liverpool do feel to be at the stage where spending an awful lot of money on one player to really upgrade a position is probably the sensible move now. Um, it, you know, obviously Allison was what fifty odd, Van Dyke was seventy five odd, um, and it's it's hard to think of many goalkeepers that are better in the world than Allison. Certainly very hard to think of anyone who's as complete a footballer as Allison in goalkeeping terms. Probably Marc-Andre Testegen at, at Barcelona, um, who has that combination of pure goalkeeping ability and also ability with his feet, Ederson at, at Man City to a slightly lesser degree. So, you know, what they've done there is they've they've gone, who is the perfect keeper for us? Let's spend as much as we need to get them. Um, Van Dijk, probably the best centre-back in the world. So yes, the two areas that you would probably want to look at would be midfield and attack. Um, I think it's difficult with the midfield because Oxlade-Chamberlain has looked really, really good in this kind of tentative return to injury. He's exactly the kind of player that Liverpool need to be able to mix things up a little bit. Keiter is somebody who, you know, obviously he's he's very popular, particularly among sort of stats Twitter, um, for his ability to to play progressively, to break passes, to carry the ball. So again, if he's back and if he's fit, uh, and if he's able to uh, to find the kind of form that he did um, before he broke down, then yeah, sure, that you know, they they probably don't need that actually. Um, well, in terms of attackers, uh, there are a few names that they've been linked to. Timo Werner. Would you mind if I... Well, I was going to say Timo Werner is one. Yeah. Jadon Sancho, although I'm aware that every uh, top Premier League club is linked with Jadon Sancho. The other one, which um, seems unlikely, but is, a, is a, uh, a player that I think only would be linked to Liverpool in the Premier League at the moment, is Kylian Mbappe. Mm. 
Yeah. Start where you wish. Um, yes, please, to all of them. <laughs> sure. And what, what I was actually going to say for a moment is this is quite a nice change for us because, as you know, it's great that you preface this little bit of conversation by saying it's probably right for Liverpool to spend a lot of money yeah. uh, significantly upgrading one position now because we never do this on the TIFA podcast. It feels almost wrong and rancid to be discussing Kylian Mbappe as a transfer target. Yeah. But goodness gracious me. I mean, the, the thing is that it, you know, sensible transfers means that right and and sometimes the sensible transfer is to and i know you know people if they've read soconomics or whatever will will generally speaking disagree with this but sometimes what you need to do to elevate a team and it's pretty hard to elevate liverpool um and that you know that front three are they're not old you know salah's 27 mané's 27 firmino's 28 so They've got plenty of time left. Um, and I, uh, when I was doing the video script for it, I'd sort of forgotten how long Firmino had been at Liverpool. Like, you know, so it's... They are not players who are who are still great, but on the cusp of being needed to be replaced. Um, I, I think that is an issue with, with talking about some of these bigger names, because obviously if you're going to sign Mbappe, you're going to sign Sancho... Um, Werner, they will want to start. Um, there's no question of sure, that. Sure, but I mean, so, can I say for a start that Timo Werner, I would argue, is not a big enough name or or a good enough player to displace Firmino from the squad, right? I mean, that's inarguable, isn't well, it? Well, I, I don't think he would be that player. He, I think Werner, Werner has played wide before. Um, he has played at um, Leipzig as the striker ahead of a of a more physical aerial striker and largely in Yusuf Poulsen. Um, he's very much the sort of player who runs onto passes, who makes use of the space afforded by the other player dropping off. So it would it would give Liverpool an option either to play him wide, probably coming in from the right-hand side, or potentially to play with two up front should they need to do that. Um, he wouldn't be a replacement for Firmino. it's very difficult to think of a replacement for Firmino. Um, You know, what he does as a striker is is really quite unusual. Um, Funnily enough, someone like Joelinton, or you know how to pronounce it better than I do. Joelinton. Joelinton, yeah. Uh, I I mean, I know that the video that we did on him recently was full of Newcastle fans um, saying that the reason he's not doing well at Newcastle is because he's shit. That isn't true. Um, It's... You know what he was able to do at Hoffenheim was step in and play the Firmino role and do it really, really well. So I'm not advocating Liverpool by him, but that's the kind of player that you would look for to replace him. In terms of Sancho, in terms of Mbappe, yeah, Mbappe's played uh, in wide positions before, but he is a striker. Sancho is the one who I would, I personally would move heaven and earth to get Sancho. Uh, I think he's... He's an extraordinary player for his age and in absolute terms. He's shown remarkable maturity, both playing for Dortmund and also in his England performances. He has the ability to do the unexpected thing, um, to to create something out of very, very little. And he would be able, I think, to combine both the kind of dynamic running and goal-scoring opportunities that someone like, like Salah or Mane would bring but there is an additional element to him in terms of his ability to conjure up opportunities for others playing really, really close to the byline. 
and pushing in and pulling it back. Um, and that's something that maybe Liverpool don't quite have so much of. At the moment, that's less of an issue for them because they're not really getting the runners coming out of midfield that much. And But I can imagine someone like Sancho on the right-hand side combining with someone like Oxlade-Chamberlain making these runs from deep and getting into the edge of the penalty area or a little bit further in. That could be absolutely devastating if that stuff worked well. Um, so I saw I saw a link to uh, Todd Cantwell as well earlier in the season, which I think would be great. Um, yeah, I mean, Todd, Todd Cantwell is, he's a really, really good player. He was somebody that I was interested in watching from, from the beginning of this season. I think I did a, a Football Index podcast ages ago, it feels like, but it was sort of towards the beginning of the season. And he was, he was someone that I thought was worth looking at. He's... He has got that dynamism. He's got that ability to carry the ball. And, you know, Liverpool, if Liverpool are missing anything at the moment, it's it, it's not... Fantastic hair. He's got great hair as well. Um, it, it's not the ability to carry the ball really close to the opposition goal. It's the little bit before that. Now, obviously, if, you know, if Oxlade-Chamberlain and Cato come back, then that's less of an issue. But it just adding those little elements are are maybe the thing that can elevate a team which is already really quite good at football. Yeah. Okay, one last thing. And uh, as I said earlier, this was something I was going to talk to Seb about, um, but I'm going to talk to you about it now because Seb's not here. Good luck with that. Uh, it's, um, it's Liverpool have spent £50 million on a new training complex, which uh, I um, angered <laughs> numerous Liverpool fans by mispronouncing what I thought was Kirk, ah. but apparently the K in the middle is silent. Yes, it Kirby? is. Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. Many apologies. Many apologies, really. Um, they spent £50 million building building this uh, this, this Kirby complex. Um, and we, we've released a video on it, actually, which came from The Athletic. But it's a, it's a very interesting video, and it goes into great depth um, uh, in terms of the details of this new place. Fascinating. The main thing I uh, take from it, though, is that the youth uh, and the, the reserve team players will be in the same... Um, places the first team players now and that the whole building seems to have been designed to bring everyone together to avoid having to travel between two different places to try and emphasise and uh, build upon that feeling that we were talking about before as it relates to Jurgen Klopp that sort of uh, community uh, feeling the unity and uh, the the excitement around the club do, do, do you think that those sorts of things make sense if you presumably you know you, you have everyone in, in one place tucked away together and you build that sort of um, siege mentality yeah I, I don't know if siege mentality is necessarily the way of <clears throat> looking at it I, I think what's really important is with any club, irrespective of who they are, that there needs to be a pathway from the youth levels and the reserve team to the first team for the players that are good enough. And I think, you know, having watched the the Liverpool FA Cup game against Everton, where people like, you know, Williams, Elliot, Chiravella, you know, Jones all played well, there clearly are players that are on the cusp of being ready to step up. Um it's not happened an awful lot at Liverpool yet, with the exception of Alexander-Arnold. So I'm I'm sure they'll be looking at that as something that they want to work on uh, and give players the opportunity to do that. Now, sometimes that's difficult because if your first team players don't get injured, why are you going to change anything? But, but that pathway is really important. And I think the crucial elements there are that you want the youth team 
uh, all of those age group teams, you want them playing the same way in the same style. And so being around the other players, the senior players is helpful from that perspective because they can talk about it and they can see what each other are up to. But also creating that mentality and establishing a sense of what it means to be in the first team, what's required of you in that respect and, and having that there as a as an example right in front of you I suspect for most of those players would be very inspiring, it would be educational and it would be helpful. So in that sense, bringing everyone together, it's it, it, it's very, very sensible. I don't think it's to create a kind of a, a us versus them thing. Um, I just think it means that it's easier to transmit the messages so that when those players are required to step up to the first team should that happen they are as prepared as possible for that eventuality it actually is interesting i'm, I'm rereading the script for that video now and um is this is described as a well at klopp's request the building has been designed this way so that the youngsters in development squad are close to the first team but don't have automatic access to those designated areas yet so they have to earn the right to be allowed uh, into that side of the building, but they can see what's going on, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, similarly, that reminds me of um, the thing. Let me try and find it in the script, actually. Oh, here it is. Um, the, the the huge first-team gym has a, a big uh, glass front providing panoramic views of the training pitches, um, which is supposed to be a source of motivation for those coming back from injury, mm. which is nice. And also uh, the nutrition and sports psychology bases are embedded in the middle of the building rather than being on the fringes, reflecting how highly Klopp regards the, those, the importance of those departments. Hmm? Yeah. Imagine having £50 million. I'd love to have £50 million. <laughs> Do you know how I'd, I'd design my house so that the psychology department was right in the middle as well? Yeah. And I'd stay there. That seems very sensible. Yeah. Um, are we ever going to see another team as good as this one? Yeah, of course we are. Okay. Well, that's the end then, isn't it? Um, thanks, Alex. And uh, thanks, Seb, who dropped out 10 minutes after the call. I hope it was <laughs> because of technical difficulties and not just because he can't. He can't bear it. Um, I'm sure you know. We'll hear. <laughs> we'll just, hear from him again in taking, the future. Yeah. Well, possibly he may. He may just <laughs> yeah. vanish into the ether at this point, citing self isolation as his <laughs> yeah. rationale. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about something different. Also, look out for next week's video, which is on this very topic: how Liverpool are so good. We haven't decided what the title is going to be yet, but it's going to be something along those lines. Um, look out for that. It's going to be a special one. Something really, thanks something so much really for listening. clever. Something super clever, like why, why, how they go good. So why they do good um, football? Yeah. Why they do? <laughs> we probably should call, call it. That's quite good. <laughs> People will think we've gone mad. Mm. Uh, sort of have, stuck at home. Why they do good football. Anyway, thanks for downloading today's episode. Um, as I said, we'll be back next week with something else. Our aim, as always, is to talk about football as much as possible. And we feel at TIFO in a sort of unique position to do so at the moment, given that what we're discussing is very rarely so specific to the weekend that it requires football to actually be happening. So uh, check back in next week for some other football-related stuff. And do keep an eye on the, uh, the YouTube channel Tifo Football, where we are now releasing four videos a week, including Alex's uh, new series, uh, the encyclopedia thing, with the first video of which is, Alex? Uh, what is the Makaleli role? Very exciting. That's out this week, this Thursday, the 26th, I believe that is. Uh, so do, do look out for that. Anyway, 
Love to you all in your isolation pods from our isolation pods. And uh, see you again soon. Au revoir. Bye-bye.